everyone. My name is Kat Savage and I'm a professional artist, clinical hypnotherapist and well-being expert working with those in the creative arts sector. In my line of work, I get to meet some amazing, colourful people from actors to artists, people who live their lives by their own rules, fueled by passion and determination to bring their unique talents into the world. I wanted to discover what it took for people to leave the usual nine to five and hop on a dream, to capture their bravest moments and share these meaningful conversations with you so that together we can explore the ideas, emotions and moments that could potentially change our lives too. So let's keep talking, have some fun and enjoy the show. This week on the Brave Moment podcast begins part one of a two-part special with tsunami survivor and founder of Happy Headwork, Steph Hill. Steph was a psychology graduate teaching in Southeast Asia when the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami hit, leaving her with life-threatening injuries and killing her partner. Suffering with PTSD, she decided to take charge of her own recovery and embarked on a personal journey into the neurohealth sciences, allowing her the opportunity to self-rehabilitate. Since her recovery, Steph took on a Master's in Disaster Management and Sustainable Development, allowing her to work with NGOs and UN agencies across the international development and humanitarian sectors. This is a very special interview and it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the inspirational Steph Hill. Before you continue, please bear in mind that due to the true nature of events in Steph's story, some listeners may find the content, which describes natural disasters, survival, medical procedures, PTSD and death, upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Steph Hill, welcome to the Brave Moment. Thank you so much. Lovely being here. <laughs> How is it in Wales today? Is it nice and sunny as it is down here? Or is it storming up a brew? The sun always shines on Swansea Cat. Oh. <laughs> that is, yeah, no, it's gorgeous here today. It's beautiful. <laughs> awesome. Oh, it's so nice to be coming out of lockdown finally and being able to step outside and feel like we're not going to be bombarded by some crazy virus. What have you been doing in your uh, sort of first weeks of freedom? Oh, well, um, my little boy and me have um, a camper van. So we have been out on a few camper van adventures, which has been Wonderful. And um, enjoying taking him to sports clubs again. It's, it's sports lovely. Clubs. Yeah. <laughs> Watching him play rugby. You know, it's, yeah, it's been great. <laughs> you are the most Welsh person I know. And that is a brilliant thing. <laughs> So we are going to talk today about a, well, a wonderful life that you now live, but also uh, a part of your past that triggered this amazing life that you live now. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to take you back to before the event in your life that, that changed everything. So I want to know, mm -hmm. what was your life like when you were younger? What were your hopes and your ambitions? Where did you see your life heading uh, at that point? Well, I mean, if I take myself back way back to when I was a child, I mean, I grew up on on the Gower Peninsula near Swansea in South Wales, and it was just idyllic, really. It was beautiful, you know, spending our days kind of roaming around the fields behind my, my folks' house, and it was just lovely. Um, and then off to university, and always wanted to work in, in the charity sector, and, I, mm. and then I kind of just didn't really know 100% what I wanted to do, but I just knew that it was in something to do with social justice. Can you remember uh, what your sort of personality was like at uni? Uh, who did you hang out with? What music did you listen to? What sort of uh, woman were you turning out to be at that point? <laughs> oh, I think if I had to describe it in one word, I'd probably use the word wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are Welsh. <laughs> Um, 
I had a great group of friends. In fact, they're lifelong friends. They're, they're still really great friends. Um, and the music we used to listen to, well, we used to listen to a lot of um, drum and bass and jungle and reggae. And, and, and there was a lot of partying that was had for sure. <laughs> so proper university lifestyle. Oh, that's what I like to hear. Back in the day when students could, you know, we didn't have that huge financial pressure that they have today. So it was almost like a rite of passage to be yeah. a bit wild. And um, yeah, so glad. I feel you. <laughs> Living the rock and roll way is always a good way to go when you're young, I think. Um, so, so looking back to that time, do you think that you were happy? Um, did you have any regrets at that point? Did you feel like you were on the right path? What was going through your mind at that point in your life? Yeah, I was absolutely happy. Um, I lived a bit of a charmed existence, actually, you know, just a wonderful childhood, wonderful family, great friends, loving uni life, loving where life was kind of unfolding, really. And yeah, yeah, really, truly happy. <laughs> Talk to us about some of the relationships that you had that made an impact on you at a young age. So um grew up on a street where it was a street full of lovely boys, actually. And the only <laughs> girls were me and my, my best mate, Leah. And then off to university. And like I said, made real lifelong friends. I met Chris at university and I'm talking about relationships. He was and will always be one of the most impactful relationships in my life for sure. We fell deeply, deeply in love. And then me and Chris decided, um, we made the decision to go to work in Taiwan as English teachers. We really wanted to travel the world after university, but we were skint as most students <laughs> were. And um, so I looked online and thought um, and found out all about English teaching and managed to land us a job in Taiwan. So off we headed to Taiwan and um, taught English there for 18 months. That's amazing. Um, when you got there, how did you feel and what did you hope it would be like? Really excited, really excited to be on this adventure with, with the love of my life. It was somewhere different to anywhere else I'd ever been. Um, we had this amazing apartment, which looked over the jungle. <laughs> well, there was a beautiful forest and um, uh, lived just down the valley away from this monastery. And every day we would hear the, the monks chanting, just floating down the down the valley, wow. which was wonderful. Um, and in the evenings, if you turned the light on in the apartment, then all these amazing bugs would stick to the <laughs> <laughs> and it was just amazing um yeah really enjoyed just teaching and we planned then to sort of um continue this adventure we eventually wanted to come back to the UK but we had a good few years left in us for um seeing all of the world really so we both enjoyed teaching and decided to continue our journey with teaching and work our way around the world teaching English mm -hmm. so whilst you're out there um something big happened in your life didn't it so mm -hmm. why don't you tell us what happened and what impact it made upon you after we left Taiwan so we were out in Taiwan for 18 months and then the next stage was to travel around Southeast Asia and we took a few months out to have a holiday traveling around Cambodia Vietnam Thailand and Laos and then we were meeting my family so my mum my dad and my brother for Christmas and we met them on an island in Thailand called Koh Phi Phi and we had the most idyllic Christmas it was wonderful <laughs> um, Christmas day was spent we hired a boat and we traveled around to the islands <laughs> drank lots of local moonshine and, <laughs> and, and and danced around to a, a reggae band in the afternoon it was just wonderful but then we woke up on boxing day morning to this almighty noise of screaming and first of all I thought it was a celebrations going on but then the screening turned into a huge rumble almost a bit like the sound of the tube train coming in London but but louder mm. and the whole place starts shaking and we now know that that what that was uh, was the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. That's a, a big big life event not only for just you as a person but for the whole entire world I mean I can, I can remember mm. that event really vividly um, just watching it on the news and thinking oh my god what what mm. it, it just seems so surreal T tell us tell us what happened how are you feeling take us through that moment if you if you don't mind there was myself and Chris in one bungalow my 
parents in the next bungalow and then my brother in the third bungalow along. So in my bungalow, me and Chris were laying there and everything started then just shaking. The whole bungalow started shaking to the point that all the, first of all, the pictures started swaying, then the roof started jumping up and down. Um, Chris sat up at the end of the bed and just kept on looking shocked, kept on looking towards the window, looking at me, towards the window, looking at me. And I was kind of physically stuck to the bed. I don't know what happened, but I just, I was paralysed by fear, Mm. couldn't move. And something inside me just told me to just keep the cover that they put on hotel beds over me. And I kept saying to Chris, lay down, lay down. But he he was paralysed with fear himself and just kind of looking at me sat upright. And then the next thing was um, a huge wall of water just broke through the whole bungalow, just smashing it all apart, taking me with it. And I felt myself go through, first of all, the wall into the bathroom. And then I felt myself hit and break through the the wall outside of the bathroom as well. And, And then I was in a huge washing machine of tsunami of all sorts of things finally it kind of stopped and and I was trapped underneath the water um and then there was a second kind of push Mm. and again eventually that kind of stopped um and as as all this was going on it was in terms of what was I thinking and feeling Mm. it was really looking back it was quite interesting because it was chaos absolute chaos but my brain kind of slowed down and it was so strange thinking the thoughts that I was thinking thinking oh my gosh I'm I'm gonna die and just this feeling of disappointment that I wasn't gonna do the things that I wanted to do when when they say like your life flashes before your eyes is that Mm. what happens or is it more Mm. like like you're saying like that disappointment oh no I'm not going to get to do the things that were sort of set up for my future or are you more nostalgic this is ridiculous right but I had my (laughs) had my palm read when I was at university ridiculous I was working behind a bar and someone came into the bar and told me they read palms and um and it was probably a load of rubbish but um he told me that I was going to write a book <laughs> and in my last moments so, so I thought they were last my, my last moments this guy that read a palm in a pub and um, popped into my mind and I thought I'll never write that book he told me I was gonna write <laughs> Best get to it, girl. Best get to it. If Mills and Boone are listening. (laughs) I've got them on speed dial, don't worry. So it was absolutely ridiculous. But yeah, so um, so that kind of went through my head. It was just, and then just random thoughts, you know. What was your body doing to, in order to survive? Were you, did you have to tell yourself to breathe? Were you telling yourself to hold your breath? Like, what What was your brain telling your body to do? That's a great question, right? And and it's funny, actually, because I wouldn't have remembered that unless you'd asked me that question because years before, so I, I've always been a skier. I love skiing. And, um, and I watched this documentary about how to survive an avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> and um, weirdly, one of the things that flashed through my head was that documentary and how that you're supposed to create a pocket of air around your face if you're ever in an avalanche mm. by moving your hands in front of you. And so I managed to somehow remember to do that, even though I'm in water, it didn't stop the water, mm, you know, it, mm. it didn't make me able to breathe underwater. But it, what it did was protect my face from being further damaged than it was. Mm. In terms of the breath thing, I remember at some particular point, almost in the churn of all of the tsunami, at one point sort of coming above the waterline and managing to take a quick breath, mm. um, which was full of kind of this disgusting salt water mixed with all sorts of things. And then I was pushed under again. Mm. Um, and then when the water finally stopped, I was buried underneath things underneath the water. And I managed to kind of open my eyes slightly and see a shaft of light through the murky water. And I was somehow able to sort of move the debris that was over the top of me out of the way and pull myself out, luckily. And then I was neck deep in um, just devastation, complete devastation. And I remember just spitting out lumps of concrete. I'll never forget the taste of that concrete. It was, yeah, I'll I'll remember that till the day I die. Yeah, I I honestly felt like the world had ended and 
um, as I joke and say, how egotistical of me to think that I was the only one left to survive. To survive. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I, yeah. I, can, I can imagine, I'm, I'm like visualising it as you're talking and, mm. you know, not only just sort of physically being pushed and pulled in that scen- scenario, mm. but then to pop your head out of all of the debris and see nothing, mm. as you rightly say, other than devastation. Of course mm. that would go through your head. That's, mm. That must have been probably more frightening than actually being in the tsunami. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it absolutely was because... A few minutes later, I started to process things. But at that particular moment, I think it was just self-survival mm. kicked in. Mm. So I managed to look around and I saw that there was a bunch, there'd been um, some building going on on PP and they used bamboo as scaffolding. Mm. And there was a huge bundle of um, bamboo that had been pushed against this kind of dilapidated fence. And then when I looked at that, I looked up and I realised there was some still some buildings standing where people were up on the roofs and things. Mm. So I managed to pull myself out. Um, I was I was completely naked because I'd been in bed. Pull myself out and basically just crawl across unspeakable things oh to get to this to get to this bamboo. And then I managed to kind of pull myself up onto the bamboo and somehow stand up. And then when I looked down, I just saw how what state my body was in. You know, I mean, there were huge lacerations all over my body muscle hanging out everywhere I mean it was pretty horrific and then I noticed that my arm there was a huge laceration on my right arm and it was it was bleeding and I needed to stop that that bleeding Mm. and um I looked up at the roof and this guy threw down a t-shirt to me and I managed to tie the t-shirt using my teeth it sounds like an adventure movie I know (laughs) (laughs) it kind of is isn't it really and managed to use my teeth to tie this t-shirt around my my arm and then I then my body just went whoa and I collapsed Mm. and I and and I and it was probably the I'm not saying that I did leave my body it was probably just my mind playing tricks on me because of all the adrenaline pumping through and so forth but I literally felt like I could see myself I felt like I I collapsed and I felt like I could see myself Mm. and I had this thought of Stephanie Hill you are not gonna die just yet (laughs) and I just like just like the stern voice and I just kind of (laughs) bolt upright (laughs) bolt upright and I just started screaming then I think the realization that where are my family you know so I started screaming for like Chris and my parents and my brother and you know, they, they, there was no sign of them. Mm. Um, and then this this guy was calling, he was Thai and he couldn't speak English and he was calling me to, to move to safety. Mm. But every time I stood, my legs would just go because they were so badly damaged. Mm. And um, bless him, he came and he scooped me up. He was only a, a small guy and I'm five foot ten and <laughs> I was very slim at the time, but I, I was still heavy. And um, he scooped me up in his arms and carried me across the devastation and took me up to a room in one of the buildings that hadn't been destroyed and I was in there for however long with a bunch of other people that were injured a couple of Thai men and um, a woman called Jacko who was from Japan Mm. and we were in there for some time kind of just in shock really then all of a sudden I was looking at my wounds and um, somebody had broken into a doctor's surgery in the island that hadn't been destroyed and they turned up with a bunch of medical things now um chris was really savvy when it came to first aid things mm. so he we'd always traveled with this medicinal alcohol so when someone passed it to me i knew exactly what to do um and so i basically went right one two three and i just poured oh, it all God. over my wounds oh. I won't repeat the language I use. That literally (laughs) sent shivers through my teeth when you said that. Oh, my Mm. God. Carry on. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty painful. Meanwhile, my parents and my brother were having their own crazy time. Oh, my gosh. Mum and Dad managed somehow to stay together, but then they were sort of wandering around the island when they finally climbed out of the devastation, completely naked. They had to... they had to save a woman that was stuck in a tree. So my father and her husband, they, um, first my parents scaled up to the balcony, then my father and this woman's husband held my mother by the ankles, naked, so she could save this woman from a tree. 
my dad always jokes that um, the husband of the woman that they rescued from the tree um, wasn't traumatised by the tsunami, but he did receive counselling after seeing my mum hanging naked upside down. (laughs) (laughs) Your dad sounds like a freaking legend. Eventually I... I I heard my mum calling my name, so I shouted, Mum, and she, her and my dad found me. That's incredible. I mean, considering the the situation that you were in, I I can't imagine what it must have been like to hear your mother's voice just shouting back to you. That must have broken your heart. Oh my gosh. Do you know, just reliving it now, and I've got goosebumps all over my body just remembering that moment. Yeah. 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 And and actually, they came up to find me in the room, but then they said, um, my mum said to my dad, we're going to have to get something to move Steph into to get her up to higher ground because she can't walk. Mm. Um, so dad went down to find um, a baggage trolley. Uh, There's no cars on PP, so there was lots of baggage trolleys everywhere. Mm. And dad mm. went down to find the baggage trolley. And just at that moment, my brother walked past with not one piece of white in his eyes. His, he'd come so close to drowning, his eyes were completely red. Completely oh red. Goodness. Um, oh, bless Yeah, him. so we then manoeuvred up to the, the hillside to a remaining, it was a reggae bar that had was high enough on ground to, to have not been touched. And we spent the day there and my father and my brother just kept on going and looking and looking for Chris, just searching, searching. Mm. Mm. Um, and we can we can find him. I can't imagine what that must have felt like knowing that, you know, your family, the rest of your family were mm. safe, but Chris was still missing. What what was going through your mind? How did you cope with that? Just complete panic. Complete mm. panic. But I just knew that he was alive in my heart. I was like, mm. I'm sure he's alive. I'm sure he was alive. I think now in you know, retrospect that that was my, my body's way of keeping me alive, really. We spent the whole day there and there was this amazing woman. I'd love to actually find her someday. Her name was Angelica and she was um, a medical student who had been out um, offshore diving when the tsunami hit. So hadn't been injured by it. She spent the whole day kind of tending to everyone that was there. No rescue boats came, but sort of as the day was coming into darkness, a tourist boat was chartered to to come to the island and rescue some Mm. people. But obviously there was a call to be made on who was going to be put on that boat. And she she made the call. She said, only those that are not going to make it through the night are going to go on this boat. So she came over to me and said, you need to get on this boat. You're not going to make it otherwise. (sighs) Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine what that must have done to your insides. You must have been like, of course I'm going to make it. Of course I am. Of course I am. That's what I would be thinking in my head. But equally, hearing that from a professional must have made you doubt that. Yeah, it did. Uh, To be honest with you, I think it probably was harder for my mum to hear that and and, and, and my Mm. parents and my dad and my brother because I think I was just mindset on I'm not leaving here without Chris, you know? Yeah. So long story short, um, my parents had to stay on the island for the night because they were badly injured, but they weren't one of the ones that, you know, could be fatal. I asked if my brother could come too because I I just didn't want to go alone, you know? So my brother came with me and these guys put me on an old door and carried me across the island um, to the other side of the island and it was like it was felt like something out of a war film it was it must have been so surreal so surreal and all the time I just kept on shouting Chris's name in case because there was pockets of people and little fires going on everywhere and stuff like that you yeah. know so I was shouting Chris's name in case he was somewhere on that sort of journey to the boat um, mm. at one point um, one of the guys got tired so my brother offered to take the corner of the door and I said he can't take the corner of the door because um, he's injured himself and my brother was like shush Steph shush and I was like if you don't put that door down now I'll roll off here and crawl out on my belly <laughs> that doesn't sound like you <laughs> when it's your sister or was this bossy and he went oh you don't know the half <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. so yeah, we made it to um to um 
Phuket. They took us to Phuket and I was mm. put straight into the into surgery as soon as we arrived. What what happened when you were in surgery? Did I mean were you conscious? Were you unconscious? Did your body finally sort of give in and surrender to the situation? Were you able to sort of release some of that fighting spirit so that people <laughs> could do their work? What what was going on? I'm, I've got so many questions. Yeah, no, Steph. No. So many questions. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I'm I'm, I'm just laughing because actually one thing about my family, we always find something to laugh about. <laughs> <laughs> in the most randomest times. <laughs> so basically, as they were taking me on this, I, it was very panic stationed, you know, getting me on this, mm. like, kind of, um, what they call, you know, the wheelie bed things to get me into surgery. Yeah, yeah. And as they're, like, wheeling me through, all fussing over me, there's a Reuters um, cameraman with a camera pointing in my face, oh like, my and God. someone trying to interview me. And I'm like, and by this point it was all too much and I started just vomiting right and my brother I was Mm. like John help me to my brother and he was like trying to bring humour into the situation so he went (laughs) he had just started a business at that point and it was called Banter Club it's it's no longer it was kind of one of his younger businesses and um, it was called Banter Club so John John said use this as promotion Steph say Banter Club (laughs) dog so I was laughing being sick and looking at the camera going Banter Club dog (laughs) her And then bless him. So I got put into surgery and they told him when I was in surgery that they didn't think I would walk again because of the damage to my spine. Did did you hear that? Did you hear them say that? No, I was unconscious. I was was in, um, I was under anaesthetic, general anaesthetic, yeah. yeah. And I woke up from there. I woke up from that, literally, I woke up being put onto a plane. So I didn't wake up in the hospital. I woke up being put onto a plane. Um, Wait, which was so nuts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was weird. Yeah. So w- was this plane going back to the UK? No, was it no. going to another part of the it island? Was, where, where were you it going, was, It was Steph? going to Bangkok. Um, yeah, so they were sending me off to Bangkok. So me and my brother then were sent off to Bangkok and then I had six days worth of surgery. Um, just I was in intensive care the whole time. Couldn't eat or anything in between. Kept on getting Getting my brother to sneak me lemons so I could lick a lemon. <laughs> Just get some tails. <laughs> so many jokes, so little time. <laughs> Um, yeah, so um, yeah, so I had these surgeries when they were just kind of putting me under. Uh, yeah, take us through some of your surgeries. Like, what what had to happen to make you human again? It was a bit of a miracle, actually. Down my right side of my body, which is the side that the the, the huge wall, uh, the glass window was, where the tsunami broke through the bungalow. There was mm. huge lacerations all down that side of my body. I think I've got thirteen scars over, like quite sizable ones as well so the one on my thigh that's something like 35 centimeters because it kind of goes on an angle as well that one um was it stopped a millimeter away from the major artery the major artery (gasps) the one on my arm that i mentioned that i tied the t-shirt around that Mm. also Mm. stopped a millimeter away from the major artery oh my goodness and then the one on the back of my foot which is where the uh, near the achilles heel that was a millimeter away from the achilles heel the achilles tendon sorry um, yeah, you are literally a living miracle at this point. It then. was it was just very very lucky, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, but I had lots of other ones all over the body as well. But they were kind of the they're, the, they're my sort of my more sort of yeah impressive ones. And <laughs> <laughs> so um, in surgery, I had to um, they had to basically pull out loads of like bits of concrete glass um and just debris that was just wedged Mm. into muscles and just yeah and um and do all sorts of things like that so it was like back to back for yeah for six for six days um also at some point these lovely women came into the into the room my hair was so mangled with concrete um Mm. and my hair's wild and curly at the best of times it was mangled 
with concrete. And um, they had spent three hours washing my hair to get all the concrete out. Oh, bless Yeah, them. it was amazing. Um, but after six days, um, the surgeon said, we can't put you to sleep anymore because if we do, then your heart is probably going to give up. So we're going to have to fix you when you're awake. So I was like, okay. So I would go down to surgery every day and I would insist that I hoiked myself from the bed over to the other bed because it kind of gave me a sense of empowerment um, and a mm-hmm. bit of, uh, which I needed at that moment because meanwhile you know my Chris is still missing my my mum and dad they had to get airlifted the next day in an old mash helicopter um yeah <laughs> over to Krabby my mum was put into surgery so she had horrendous like wounds as well and and then my gorgeous father stayed down in that area. My, they flew my mum up to Bangkok so she could be with us and so we she could be treated. My my father mm. spent the whole time in in the in the south just searching searching for Chris. And so meanwhile up in in Bangkok, I I was um having to have these surgeries as I was awake. Could you feel it? Like what was what was going on? Yeah. So basically, the first day when they started working, I had this major surgeon. His name was Doctor Rat. And the first day he operated on me when I was awake, I started screaming, "Ah, that hurts!" Yeah, I'm not surprised. And then I looked at him and I went, "Oh," I said, "Look, I am boring." the hell out of myself screaming would you mind if I sung instead I said I I I cannot sing for toffee I literally cannot I'm not being modest I really can't um but um would you mind if I sung because it will help me it will just put my spirits up a little bit and not sound like so much of a victim so I just started singing so he'd be pulling things out for me and I'd be going no woman no crap (laughs) <laughs> no, no, and we and eventually he started singing with me so I sang all the songs he knew so we sang um, Hotel California um, <laughs> bit of Barb Streisand bit of Diana Ross you know bit of Bob Marley and um, yeah so we so every day when we go down we'd sing together and it was it was great actually you know because it was just a way of like you know, that poor guy was working 24-7 um, and then we got to the last Day, and I, I I was feeling a bit pathetic to be honest and I laid there and I started singing Amazing Grace <laughs> I still cringe at that I still completely cringe about it even Dr Rat cringed because Dr Rat <laughs> started filling up with tears and he went you're, you're being too sad now and then I just burst up laughing and I went yeah sorry about that <laughs> let's, let's have a bit of Janis Joplin shall we <laughs> any other memories that sort of spring up as you're talking about this now? Um, well, one of them, it does put a bit of a, a smile on my face, actually, was, um, so one of my injuries uh, was that when I when I came out of the tsunami, my, my kind of, my chin was hanging off. What? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, had, uh, just a bit of laceration in it and, and it was kind of hanging off. And um, so they had to do a bit of plastic surgery on me uh, when I was in hospital. And um, when the surgeon, um, eventually I needed to get the stitches out. Mm. So I went down to surgery to get the stitches taken out. And the plastic surgeon, poor guy, was probably exhausted. They, so they, they you know, anas- put anaesthetic in me so I was all numb around my face. <laughs> and as he was taking the stitches out, he slipped and cut me on the side <gasps> of my cheek with his scalpel. <laughs> And, and bless him and he went oh, I'm so sorry I've cut you on on your face and I was like I couldn't move my mouth so I went it's alright don't worry and he went and he went but you could sue me I'm so sorry I went I'm not gonna sue you don't worry it's fine just an, just another scar it's fine oh Steph that's as we're talking, I'm actually holding my chin. Oh, so what happened next when that, when that final day of surgery was done? <laughs> what what happened next? What, what was going through your mind? Like, could you focus more on on the Chris situation? Then were you were you wanting just to go home? What what was going on then? I wanted to go down to the south and dig with my bare hands if I had to. I wanted to find mm. him. My father 
bless him, had just been, you know, like I said, searching morgues. He had to, like, sleep on the floor in a monastery because there was no beds. And, you know, he had a, a crazy time himself down there. And it got mm. to New Year's Eve and Dad had phoned and said, I'm just having no luck here finding him. And my father's injury was getting infected as well. And so my mum said, Steve, you're going to have to come up, you know, to Bangkok. And he said, I just can't face my little girl and tell her that I can't find her partner. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's heartbreaking. Mm. I, I mean, just hearing that now, I'm starting to well up. Just think, just thinking about you know, yeah, <laughs> just that situation. Sorry, no, oh. sorry, <laughs> I got. I just welled up then as well. <laughs> and oh. um, yeah, so I said, oh my gosh, of course, tell him he, he must come. You know, because he's so precious to me. And so mm. um, yeah, he, my father came up and we were all together. And and eventually, then we were able to fly. And I said I didn't want to leave until Chris was found but um they kind of talked a bit of sense into me and said look you know you're not going to help you're not going to be able to help you're so badly injured you're not going to be able to help with the search you're going to hinder it if anything you've got to leave it to the spec you know to the experts and you know we, we are best off kind of taking the pressure off the resources here and going home and and mm. you know and it was a really hard really hard decision to make to to get on that plane how did that feel you know going back home did it did it feel like you were returning to a movie set like what happened next how did how did you have to confront your trauma in a normal and i put that in quote marks yeah. surroundings in in somewhere that you considered to be your home your roots mm. Like, what was going through your mind? How were you feeling? That's a great question, actually, because it was my home. It was where I I grew up in Swansea, but I I had left there several years earlier to go off to uni, and then I'd left uni almost two years by this point, left Mm. the UK almost two years ago, and it had been living in this kind of world with Chris, you know? Mm. Um, So it felt... It felt strange, and actually coming back to to Swansea, although I had my family with me, a lot of my close friends were sort of had all gone off to union, then dispersed to other places in the world. So, although I knew lots of people here, I didn't have any close friends here anymore. So mm. it felt it felt lonely for me. Actually, it really did. Although I had my family, which was wonderful, it it, it did also feel lonely. I was at this point, the trauma hadn't set in. I was just clinging on to hope Um, Mm. I kept on hearing random reports of people being found defying all odds and I thought if that's going to be anyone that'll be Chris and the time just kept on going Um, in the meantime his his parents they're they're deeply Catholic and had insisted that we had a, a memorial before he was found which I wasn't comfortable with but they needed to mm. grieve and they were his parents so you know I, I completely yeah. understood so we had a memorial for him uh, his body was found four months after the tsunami yeah. I mean when you heard that news how how did it come to you and what what happened well I had taken myself off to um, a Buddhist retreat in the Scottish Highlands <laughs> My head was in bits and I needed to try and find some mm. peace in my head. And so I yeah. randomly had this idea to go off to a Buddhist retreat. And it just uh, its one of my more ridiculous ideas. Um, but it was, I mean, it, it, it would have been lovely at any other time, but I wasn't quite ready for it. And, um, mm. and then following that, I, a friend had said, look, I'm going away. She's got a flat in Brighton. I'm going away skiing. Would you like to come and house it, my flat? So I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. So I went and house it just because I kind of just wanted to be on my own at that point. Um, Understandably so. Yeah, yeah, I almost, yeah. So I was there and one day um, a friend who also lived in Brighton came over to have some food with me and there was a knock at the door and as I walked down the stairs to answer the door, I opened it and my parents and my brother were there and they just looked at mm-hmm. me and they went, um, they found Chris's body, darling. And... I just collapsed. I completely collapsed um, onto the floor and I just felt like the whole world had kind of been wiped from under me. That was that was the hardest moment. I think that was the hardest moment of my life, that moment, yeah. I'm just listening to that now and, and thinking, you know, thinking about Tim, thinking about the people that I love and, yeah. and having to receive that news. And, I, I mean, in, in some way that must have been worse than you know, being in the tsunami mm, yeah. because of that emotional connection. 100%. What did you what did you have to do to literally get back up on your feet? Well, luckily, like I've said, I've got the 
best family um so mm. um they kind of picked me up and sort of guided me up the stairs and then my father turned to my brother and said get down the off license and buy this girl a bottle or two of wine <laughs> <laughs> so i hope he wasn't stingy and I, he bought you good oh, wine honey, we're never stingy on wine <laughs> oh good no. good good <laughs> um uh so um yeah so we had a few wines and the next day we we drove back to wales and in the car i said to my brother john can you go get me a surfboard i need to go down to the sea now i was never a good surfer at at the best of times but for some reason i felt this need to go in the sea so my brother after much persuasion organized that for me and took me down to the sea and um i got in there and i screamed blue murder at the sea i literally let it rip and i would try and catch a wave and then i would fall off and then i would get back on and my brother would say you okay had enough yet no i haven't enough and i was just like fierce i look back now god knows what people thought of me um and eventually just battered and exhausted my my brother just kind of helped me out of the sea and took me home. I'm just listening to that and I'm thinking, you know, people that are listening to this thinking, how does she find the courage to get back into the ocean? Like, like when you saw the sea again, what happened before you rushed into it? Oh, just pure anger drove me. Pure anger. I was so angry that that's that that was definitely my main emotion I was so angry at the sea that I was completely driven by it I was like you are not going to you're not going to take away from me like me you're not you know Mm. you've taken the love of my life and and I'm not going to be scared of you um Mm. and just that's the way that my grief was coming out at that point it came out in different Mm. different ways at different points on my journey um Mm. but at that point it was anger it was, yeah. When when you'd got out of the sea, exhausted and released, I, I imagine, yeah. what did you feel then? Did you feel like you had some sort of closure? Did you feel empowered? What was going through your mind after that event? I definitely did not feel closure. I felt some release. I, I definitely felt some kind of release there. And I felt like part mm. of it, I'd faced part. A little part of it not long afterwards so we just found out that his body had been found but then his body returned the week after and um, which mm. happened to be on his birthday um so his oh body returned goodness. to the uk on his birthday the 13th of april um that number follows me around everywhere yeah so i was obviously unable to to to, to see his body because it was mm. um so badly damaged um but i spent some time with his in the room with his coffin mm. and got to say a few things and I sang him a song <laughs> what did you sing? because he hated my singing because <laughs> it's the final revenge it was, just, it was just always a joke between us how bad my singing was and I always used to sing this song called Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin every morning <laughs> and um, and he used to wind me up about it so I, I sang that to him and um, yeah and then we had his funeral um, so I think a week later mm. um, and that gave some closure in some ways in terms of the hope mm. the hope that he mm. was still around that that was closed how how did you begin your journey to sort of self-rehabilitation at that point now that you knew that Chris wasn't coming back what did it take to get yourself back into the swing of life again well and find some normality well this is when the the fun really began I'm being sarcastic um so, <laughs> so basically um with that I started really then um experiencing PTSD started having panic attacks terrible terrible nightmares just feeling really socially anxious really anxious flashbacks where I would taste that concrete taste and the, the feeling of salt water in the back of my throat literally I'd be sitting there and I could literally envisage a tsunami smashing through the wall and I actually remember going for an interview to go on a postgraduate course two months after Chris's body was found so I kind of need thought I needed to sort of focus on moving my life forward in some shape or form and I was there getting interviewed for the course and as I was there I could literally envisage the wall crashing through but I somehow managed to keep it together and get on the course. <laughs> um, what was the course? <laughs> it was um, a postgrad in teaching um, adult English. Um, and I mm. came top of the class in, in the end somehow. <laughs> I, God knows how. So, so I was dealing with these horrendous kind of um, this horrendous trauma. So I went to my GP and I begged for help. 
I uh, I asked for some counselling and they sent me to see a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist listened to me for an hour and I, I told him all about what had happened and at the end of it it felt quite cathartic and I said um, oh so uh, next week same time and um, he said no and then he said well now you've got to go on a waiting list and I said wow how long will the waiting list take and he said um, oh at least at least 18 months <gasps> and I was like did you just hear what I've told you and and, and he said, Miss Hill, I did, and I'm sorry for what's happened, but there are many people in Swansea that have mental health issues and there are not <gasps> there are not enough resources. So I'm afraid you're gonna have to wait like like everyone else has to. <gasps> and I was just blown away by that. But he said, Oh, but we can offer you some antidepressants in the meantime. <laughs> and not that I'm anti against people making that choice if that's right for them but for me I so I had a psychology degree that was what I'd studied at university and um, um and I mm. knew you know a fair bit about these things so I said look I don't want to go down the antidepressants route if if I don't have to I'm gonna I'm gonna and I'm certainly not gonna wait around for 18 months for someone to help me I'm gonna take care of this um and so I began a journey where I went and learned all about different therapeutic approaches um, through going on little courses, but also through reading mm. every single book I could lay my hands on and to understand around about trauma and how to approach it. I mean, did you have the opportunity to turn to anybody else at that point for help? Absolutely. I am I am so lucky to have such amazing family and friends. I mean, my mum, my dad and my brother were just... Like there are no words to how supportive they were and they've always been. And because we lived, we, we all went through it. We all had our own different trauma with it. We all have our different experiences with it. I mean, their stories are just, you know, they're their stories to share, so I won't share them, but, you know, they're just as traumatising and been able to share that with each other. Um, we always said that we wish that we weren't there, but if one of us was going to be there, we'd be glad we were all there together so that we could understand. Mm. And as well as that was, um, I have to say, my best friend, George, Georgie. Um, Shout out Georgie Palmer. Amazing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. She was amazing and always will be amazing. But um, she was just, you know, had endless patience and endless compassion with me and would just listen and support, you know. So I was very lucky. I didn't have, you know, trained counsellors to help me, but I had, I had amazing family and friends around me. Can you... Can you remember some of the uh, the books that you read? Like, what titles stick out in your mind at that point that made a real impact on you? Um, a book by Eckhart Tolle called A New Earth. And mm. I was going through a really hard time when I read that book. I was feeling symptoms of disassociation, which is literally when your brain has been so trauma that like you actually feel like you're kind of out of your body. So I was... I was kind of focusing on, I was able to function in the world. To everyone else around me, I was just being normal. But in my head, I was thinking, gosh, how am I even able to speak? The words are coming out of my mouth, but I feel mm. this disconnect to myself. It's such a difficult um, symptom to to, to verbalise, actually. And I read Eckhart Tolle, and it literally changed my life when I read it. It just changed my relationship with the way I was approaching the trauma um, made me realise that mm. I am not my thoughts but I am the observer of my thoughts so that was that really had a poignant impact on me and I have bought that book so many times for people across the years I love it can you remember some of the techniques uh, or courses that you had to go on that also made an impact so I went on courses around neurolinguistic programming uh, cognitive behavioural therapy mindfulness before mindfulness was um, the, the sort of as well recognised as it is today I think just pulling different tools from each of them helped me so being able to use the lessons from CBT to recognise the impact of thought on emotion and behaviour was really helpful combining that to understanding the lessons of mindfulness and that relationship between the thought and the observer um, was it was so helpful because before that I'd been completely overwhelmed by my thoughts and by the the flashbacks mm. and by the intrusive thoughts often people don't talk about intrusive thoughts but they were terrifying when you think these random horrible things and you don't know where they've come from in your mind 
Mm. So being able to see that and have space behind it, then then I was be, then I was able then to start using other techniques from places such as new linguistic programming, um, to then reform mm. and reshape those thoughts, you know, to play with them and and to be able to use them um, in a positive way. It's, I mean, obviously from my perspective, being a clinical mm. hypnotherapist myself, it's so refreshing to hear someone who's been some uh, been through something as big as you have using the power of the mind essentially um, to rehabilitate themselves. And for those people out there that go, oh no, that mm. stuff's all a load of poppycock. What would you What would you say to them about well, about the results? At, at, at the time, I, as you know, I'm also a clinical hypnotherapist now as well, and the reason yeah. I went down that congratulations babe <laughs> the reason I went down that road was because I knew how powerful it had been for me at the time when mm. I started sort of dabbling in visualization and things I didn't realize at the time that that was related to hypnotherapy per se all those years ago but mm. that was such a powerful mm. tool for me that then it piqued my interest in it and what would I say to people who say it's poppycock um well I'm not just someone who talks the talk with this kind of thing. Um, I've walked the walk with it as well. Um, I've experienced mm, firsthand mm. being in an incredibly dark place with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and and at least allowing myself the space to give things a go. I am just a huge advocate of um, empowering people to play an active role in their own mental health and emotional well-being. Sometimes the relationship between the therapist and the client, it almost becomes dependent from the client's perspective. Mm. Whereas um, because I was not able to access any therapies um, because of my postcode or any of that support, I'd have to go on this journey and find all of this for myself. Um, I realised the mm. value in actually being empowered to be proactive in your own journey as well. Now, I am not for one minute suggesting that everyone needs to do it on their own like I did because I don't think that's correct either. Um, I came from a psychology background and, and I had this thirst to learn more about it. But I think, again, it's something that, you know, we shouldn't just take one approach to mental health and emotional well-being. It should be a multifaceted approach. It should be looking at what support mm. you can get, whether that's from other therapists or from if you want to go down the sort of pharmaceutical uh, route as well, that's also fine if that's for you. But also not just... Um, not stopping there, looking at what you can do for yourself, because learning those tools makes you more resilient going forward in life. So talking of these wonderful techniques that you were discovering and doing this self-rehabilitation, this self-active mm. care, how did that change the course of your career? What happened? What decisions did you make at that point after you discovered this whole new world of, of healing? Well, it's best described as a parallel journey. So basically, in the background, I had <laughs> all of this kind of emotional, personal stuff going on. Um, and then alongside that, I was kind of, um, I decided that I'm not going to just wait to heal and then get on with my life. I'm going to think about logically what I want to do, what, what kind of lifestyle I want to have. And even though I'm not feeling that mm. at the moment, I'm going to start building the practical elements of it if, if that makes sense mm. I went back to university well I went actually I went overseas first and I was teaching overseas and then I ran an education project in Ethiopia for a year hang on a minute so you went back overseas how did it feel to get back on a plane and go um, somewhere I was going through the motions mm. and I just knew it I knew I couldn't stay still with my healing journey. I knew I couldn't just stay in mm. one place and sort of focus on me because I would think I would have got lost in the whole process. I think I would have, it would have been too <laughs> self-indulgent almost, you know? So I kind of needed that <laughs> sure, to kind of be sure. going on while getting on with life as well, you know? So it, it felt like the right mm. thing to do. So I went to live in Ethiopia, which was amazing and spent a whole year over there running an education project loved it then knew I wanted to carry on developing my career from that like working in development and 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 uh, international development and one evening I literally I thought I need to do a master's degree um so I typed into the computer master's in what question mark <laughs> with, with a bottle of beer in my hand and up popped on the screen master's of disaster and it was an ad yeah it was an it was an advert for Northumbria University for an MSc an MSc in disaster management and sustainable development. Did you spit your beer out at the computer screen at that point? Yeah, totally. 
totally. I went, oh my gosh, it's a calling. That's yeah. that's me. That's me all over it. So I um yeah, so I applied and I went and did my MSc in disaster management, loved it. And then I so then I basically came into the humanitarian world. I started um, working for um, international organisations, training staff on how to respond to disasters. And so my career started building in that way. I'm just listening to a story. You better write that book, girl, because this is going to be a bestseller. Anyway, (laughs) that made no sense, but please carry on. So here you are with your Masters in Disasters and and climbing your your career ladder. So um, I was doing that and, and simultaneously I was still going through all of my emotional stuff because I was still healing I was still I mean I remember standing in the shower in the middle of Ethiopia in Ethiopia with my hand against the wall not being able to breathe with panic Um, and eventually I got to a place where I realised that I'd kind of reconciled the trauma I realised that oh I I haven't felt like that for a long time now when did that stop you know yeah um which was which was a really nice nice thing to happen actually in the meantime I'd 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 bought a narrow boat and I was living in London um (laughs) on a complete whim I'd moved from being overseas (laughs) I'd lived overseas for a few years moved back to London to work for NGOs from but based in London and decided on a whim to buy a narrow boat um which I did and it was then I think that moment when I really started to realize that I, I was no longer like in the grips of PTSD anymore. Do you, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to your journey and I'm hearing seas, tsunamis, screaming at oceans, like the water has been such a big factor in your life to the point where you actually bought a house that lived on the water. Yeah. Was that kind of your way of dominating that, like, and I put it in quote marks again, the the challenger, the the nemesis, or was it, completely unconscious like what was what was going through your mind every time that you were surrounded by water it, to be honest with you I'd like to think of it that it was you know the former but yeah. um, it was completely unconscious <laughs> I um, <laughs> it really was I um, I remember going on a friend's boat on a bit of a jolly one afternoon when I first returned to London looking at narrow boats and thinking oh yes I fancy a bit of that and um <laughs> And literally researching it and and buying a boat to live on because it was so much more cheaper than renting a house in London. (laughs) And I turned up to buy my first narrow boat up north and handed over the cash to the guy. And I said, right, can you teach me how to drive it? And he was like, what, you've never driven a boat? I was like, no, I've never really... slept on an Arab boat either and he went you've just bought one to live on are you crazy (laughs) I said funny you should say that (laughs) oh my goodness oh Steph you're cracking me up girl Uh, yeah so yeah no I loved it yeah it was great fun (laughs) so you've been abroad you've worked in Ethiopia Nepal you've bought yourself a houseboat what happened next like what was your biggest inspiration at that point and what do you consider to be sort of the first brave moment within your job specifically Right. So and that actually aligns perfectly to where we are in the story, really. So what happened next? Without going into too much detail, I had to leave a very uh, toxic relationship. Mm. And I found myself heavily pregnant, moving back to Wales, selling up my narrow boat and leaving my career behind me to go on maternity and um, to be close to my family because I knew Mm. I was going to be a single mum. Yeah, yeah. That was my brave moment, actually. It was, right, what now? And I thought, you know what? I want to create, I want to carry on with my career because I love it. Mm. But I also want to create a life for my child where he doesn't even feel my work. Um, mm. So I decided to set up my consultancy, uh, my, my my first business. Mm-hmm. And I did. So when he was first born, you know, I'd be putting him to bed at sometimes 11 o'clock at night because he was tiny and you know what tiny babies are like. <laughs> uh, and then sometimes work until three or four in the morning just kind of building website doing all the background work and building up this business and I think my first brief moment was that it was three months into it there were no I didn't have any business coming in and I sat there over lunch with my with my parents and said to my dad who's in business himself oh do you know what I'm thinking this job has I've kind of not been offered this job but asked to apply for it so I think I've got a good chance of getting it it's a permanent full-time job working from home though um but it means I'll have to give up the self-employment journey and he said 
in my humble opinion, hold your nerve, kid, hold your nerve. <laughs> and I said, okay, that's enough for me. And so I turned out, you know, I didn't apply for the other job and I held my nerve. And so I built the consultancy, which was very much focused on the humanitarian side of my my career. Mm. But I had this idea cooking inside me, which was related to all of the the, the psychology side of things. Mm. And so, and it was to develop a course, which was um, to support, support staff mainly working in the caregiving sectors around how to build their emotional resilience, how to understand emotional resilience and psychology around it, um, all evidence-based uh, psychology. Mm. So I developed a proposal and I managed to get an interview um, with the, the great Sandra Hawley, who was the CEO of um, Refuge at the time. And I went and pitched my idea to her and she was amazing. She was so supportive and she said, you know what? We'll give you a, we'll give you a chance. Um, you can deliver <laughs> your course to our staff. If we love you, then maybe you can come back. If they don't don't like it, well, at least you've tried. And so I did. And thankfully, they loved it. And uh, now they're one of my most regular clients, actually. So that was kind of the birth of my second business, which is Happy Headwork. Um, And it's all around building a predominantly staff resilience. But um, more and more now I'm moving into supporting also service users and clients around building emotional resilience. That's incredible and such a well-needed service. I mean, especially Mm. after coming out of something like the pandemic and and all of that as well. But just from your own personal journey, how, how did it feel doing that pitch what was going through your mind like did you know it was going to go well like what what did you have to say to yourself to pitch to those people your idea I felt really vulnerable I must say I felt really vulnerable because even though I had the the sort of the psychology background I also had spent the majority of my career in the humanitarian sector Mm. I felt a bit of imposter syndrome but she was so supportive and so encouraging (laughs) that it, it it was it was it was great did you like I'm just imagining how I would react to this situation. Did you call your dad and go, I'm doing it, dad? Like, you know, I did hold my nerve. What what happened? Did you did you have that phone call with your family? Because I know that I would have done. Oh, of course. And and my mum in this particular case with this particular side of the business, I call her my silent partner, actually. She's always in the background. She's like my she's like my mentor with this kind of work. She's brilliant because she has a background in this type of work as well. Yeah, they were hugely encouraging, absolutely as always. So, yeah. This concludes part one of Steph's incredible story. Please join us again next week as we discover how Steph turned her life into one full of a success she could only dream possible. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. If you have a spare moment now, please like, subscribe and tell me your thoughts in a review on Apple Podcasts, which will really help other people like yourself to find the show. Of course, you can also share the show with your friends by following us at The Brave Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube or on Twitter at Moment Brave or just follow the link tree on all of our social media platforms. It's been so wonderful to have you all here with me again. Please get in touch with your own stories and remember, your brave moment starts now.